to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 41, as we follow along with today's lesson. He first finds his own brother, Simon, and he said unto him, We have found the Messiah. And again, he interprets, which interpreted is the Christ. I think that sometimes um, the word Christ has become to us almost a name uh, rather than uh, a designation of, of his mission as the anointed one. Uh, the Messiah. And so quite often, uh, you'll, you've no doubt noticed that when we come to the word Christ, I use the term Messiah because that, it, it just has a different connotation in our minds. Somehow we don't always associate. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, we think of that as first, middle, and last name. And uh, because we have, you know, first, middle, and last names, And so we're prone to think of that as first, middle, and last name. Lord is not his name. That's his title that signifies our relationship to him. Jesus is his name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. A beautiful name because it means Jehovah is salvation. Yahshua. Christ is is, is declaring his mission. That's who he is. He is the promised Messiah. That's not his name. That's who he is, the Messiah. So John, however, interprets it to the Greeks because the the Greek word Messiah means the same as the Hebrew, the anointed one, the anointing. Now, whenever a king was inaugurated, They would pour a vessel of oil over his head. And that was the anointing for the king. So Jesus being God's anointed is that he is God's king. The one that God has appointed king. You remember when Samuel uh, was told by the Lord to go down to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse Uh, and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the king over Israel because God had rejected Saul because Saul was disobedient and would not submit to God. God rejected Saul from reigning. So he came down to the house of Jesse and Jesse prayed at his sons through and he saw the first son Eliab and he was good looking and and well built and all and he thought, oh yes, this is surely the one. And God said, no, no. 
Uh, you look on the outward appearance, I'm looking on the heart. And so he prayed at his sons through, and finally Samuel said, well, is, is that all there is? Oh, well, no, we got one little kid out there in the field. He's watching the sheep, but, you know, he's just a <laughs> little guy. Bring him in. So when he saw David, he took the oil and he poured it over David. Can you imagine what David must have thought saying there? This old man is there pouring oil over his head, you know. But that is the anointing, the anointed one, anointed to be king. The same was true of the prophet, anointed for the office by the pouring of the oil upon him. So the anointed one, the Messiah, would, would indicate it is God's anointed king and God's anointed priest. And Jesus, of course, is both priest and king, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, uh, a high priest and uh, the one who is our mediator between God and us. And anointed as the priest, anointed as the king, the, the, the Messiah or the Christ. The anointed, God's anointed. And so he found his brother, Andrew went out and got his brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah, which being interpreted is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. Uh, now, I believe that Jesus is here just exercising his gift of, of word of knowledge. He, he says, You're Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, or stone. And, and again, notice he interprets that for us which by interpretation is a stone, uh, or Petros, uh, by interpretation into the Greek. And our Greek is interpreted here into English, the stone. Uh, but you, are, you shall be called Cephas. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. Now notice, Andrew found Peter and brought him to Jesus. Jesus didn't go out to find Andrew and the other disciple of John, but they came after Jesus. But Jesus found Philip. And he said unto him, follow me. So there were those who came to Jesus and there were those that Jesus sought and found. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. It is near the area where Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus the women and children. Uh, it is the hometown of Peter and Andrew. It's quite possible that growing up, Philip, Peter, and Andrew all knew each other. Now Philip found Nathanael. Jesus found Philip. Philip found Nathanael. And he said unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Necessary to identify him from Nazareth because there were many who were named Jesus. It was a popular Hebrew name, Joshua very popular Hebrew name. 
So they would say Joshua of Bethlehem or Joshua of Bethsaida or Joshua of Nazareth, which would then identify Jesus. And Nathanael said unto him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Evidently a town with a bad reputation. Uh, and uh, Nathaniel just questioning if, if anything good could come. And Philip just said to him, come and see. Now, it's interesting that when they, uh, when they came to Jesus and said, where do you live? He just said, come and see. Now, when Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out? He says, come and see. You know, there's, there's nothing like a personal experience. The psalmist said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But unless you taste, you'll never see. A lot of people have formed opinions without ever trying, without ever tasting, without ever coming. They are sort of like, well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, come and see. Experience. And thus the invitation is always experience the promises of God, the Word of God. It's something that isn't to be studied analytically and, and, and all uh, from a distance. It's something to participate in. Come and see. And so Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, Behold, here is an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. There's no deceitfulness. This guy's a straight shooter. This guy's square. And Nathanael said unto him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Another witness. The witness of Nathanael. Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. The anointed one. The anointed King. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Hey, stick around, man. You'll see a lot more than that. <laughs> Greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I send to you, here and after, you are going to see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You remember back when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, when he came to Bethel and he was tired and he laid down using a rock for a pillow, as he fell asleep he had a dream and he saw this ladder going up into heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on the ladder. Heaven and earth were connected. The ladder upon which heaven was touching earth. And when he awoke in the morning after this dream, 
He said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. When I came here last night, dog tired, weary, running for my life, looking at this barren, rocky area, there was nothing to suggest the presence of God. Exhausted, I fell asleep. But God is in this barren, desolate place of fear. Notice, the Lord is in this place. Not he was, but he is in this place. But I knew it not. I know it now. God is in this place. It's glorious when you discover God in the places of barrenness in your life in those places where there is nothing outwardly to suggest the presence of God, and yet to come to the realization God is here. Heaven connected to earth. Now Jesus is more or less declaring here, I'm the ladder by which heaven and earth is brought together, can be brought together. You're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending Upon the Son of Man. They were ascending and descending on the ladder. They're going to be ascending and descending. I'm the, I'm the ladder by which heaven touches earth. This is exactly what Job was looking for. In his dilemma, not understanding what was going on, and his friends not understanding. And, and one of his friends said, Hey, man, just get right with God and things will be okay. And Job says, thanks a lot, buddy. I mean, I look around, I see the, you know, I see the evidence of God all around me, but I can't see him. And who am I that I can plead my case with God? Who am I to come to God? I mean, he's so great, he's so vast, I'm sure he's there, but, you know, he, he's so vast, I can't touch him. Oh, that I had a daysman who could stand between us, who could lay his hand on us both. And, and he saw his dilemma, the greatness of God and, 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 and the smallness of me, the nothingness of me. The, the gap here is too great to be bridged. I can't reach him. I can't touch him. I can't plead my cause. Oh, if I only had someone who could stand between us, who could lay his hand on us both. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Touching God because he was God, but he became flesh and he touched me. The daysman who stands between us and touches us both. Exactly what Job was crying for, what Job needed, and which all of us need. Someone who stand and can stand between us. Someone who knows my weaknesses and understands my infirmities. One who can understand me and touch me, and yet in the same token, full of grace and truth, and he can touch the Father because he is one with the Father. Oh, how glorious that through Jesus Christ I can have fellowship with the Father for he can touch us both. And so the record of John concerning Jesus in chapter 1. Now 
He's going to go on and he's going to pick out certain of the miracles of Jesus. Jesus did a lot more. But he, he is picking now special events by which Jesus is proving that he is indeed God who has come in a body of flesh. And we'll look at these as we move through the Gospel of John. Let's turn now in our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 2. Last week in chapter 1, the declaration of Jesus, just who he is, and then the witness of John the Baptist concerning Jesus, and how that John encourages his disciples to follow Jesus. And the beginning of the gathering together of the disciples in chapter 1. The last one being that of Nathaniel, who when Jesus gave him a word of knowledge, he was convinced that he was indeed the Messiah. And Jesus said, in essence, stick around, man. You haven't seen anything yet. So that's ended chapter 1. From now on, he said, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man as he related himself to uh, the dream of Jacob who saw the ladder going into heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. Jesus is saying, I'm the ladder. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So we are told now that the third day, probably the third day after uh, Nathaniel and the uh, gathering of these disciples, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now Cana of Galilee is a short distance away from Nazareth. It is uh, on the side of the hill as you leave Nazareth, but you're sort of uh, in a little valley. You go over the top of the hill, and on the other side, you come to the uh, area of Cana in the region of Galilee. It's on the way towards the Sea of Galilee from Nazareth. Uh, there was a marriage and in that culture, the marriage was always a, a very colorful and uh, wonderful celebration. It was real party time. And uh, it wasn't uh, like our wedding ceremonies today. It was something that lasted over a period of time, uh, the celebration. And uh, the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So they were all invited, came to this uh, gala celebration. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. Evidently, Mary knew all about her son. Before he was born, the angel, when declaring to her that she had been chosen of God to be the human instrument to bring God's Son into the world, 
and would do so without the benefit of a relationship with a man, but the Holy Spirit would plant the seed in her. The angel said he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and will sit upon the throne of David. So the angel informed her that the son that was to be born was indeed the Messiah. Now she has watched him as he has grown up. He has now come into manhood. And I believe that Mary is, as, as he was now baptized and, and he begins to gather disciples, that she is anxious to more or less have him begin to display the divine powers that he possessed. There are indications in the scripture that there was some suspicion that was cast upon Mary because of the birth of Jesus. The whispers were passing the rumors of the early birth of the child from the time that she married Joseph. You remember, and we'll get to it when we move through John, how that as Jesus was disputing once with the Pharisees, they cast an aspersion at him. They said, we were not born of fornication or out of intercourse, out of wedlock, is what they were accusing him of. I think that Mary perhaps was interested in sort of vindicating herself, anxious that he be recognized now by all as the Messiah. I think that in her declaration to him, they've run out of wine, that it was, in essence, a request for him to come to the aid of the host. And Jesus answering her said, woman, and this term here is, is not one of uh, distance. It, it was a very endearing term. It's the same word that Jesus used when he was on the cross and saw Mary, his mother, standing there and John standing beside her. And he said, woman, behold thy son. But it was a term of endearment. Today it's a little distant in our English language. If you call your wife woman uh, or you call your mother woman, uh, it, it, it's a little distance, uh, but not so. Uh, in the Greek language here, it is a warm, endearing term. Uh, you might translate it mother dear. Uh, it, it's a very warm and endearing term. What have I to do with thee? <laughs> My hour is not yet come. Jesus had an extremely keen sense of timing. He knew that God had declared a day in which the Messiah would come. 
It would be 483 years from the time the commandment went forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And there was that time of the revealing of the Messiah to the nation of Israel. And Jesus was very careful that there not be a premature movement to acclaim him as Messiah. And so he is soft-pedaling through the years of his ministry around Galilee. He doesn't really bring things out into the public and into the open until he is making his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem and he carefully prepares that triumphant entry. He sends the disciples into the village to get the donkey in order that he might fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, your king cometh unto thee, but he is lowly, he's riding on a donkey. When the disciples begin to uh, quote the Hallel Psalm, the Messianic Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed be the king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Knowing that that was a Messianic song, when the disciples began to chant that on the path down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, and the Pharisees said, Lord, you better rebuke your disciples. Don't you hear what they're saying? That's blasphemy. Jesus said, if they would hold their peace, these very stones would cry out. And so he was waiting for that God-appointed day. And thus, it's early. It's premature, Mom. It isn't the time yet. My hour has not yet come. In the seventh chapter of John, we'll find him declaring a couple of times, the hour isn't yet come. Again, in the eighth chapter, in the twelfth chapter. Until we finally get, when we get to the twelfth chapter, it changes a bit. He said, the hour is near. And then in chapter 17, as he is ready to give his life, he said, Father, the hour has come. So he was very keenly aware and sensitive to timing. Now, when we get to the 20th chapter, John will tell us that Jesus did many other signs which he did not record. But these, he said, I have written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. So this is one of the first signs that John has chosen to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He gave to us last week the witness of John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah. He will bring in witnesses as we move along to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He will also, as we're going through John, give us many signs specially picked. John is careful in picking the various things. Jesus did many things. In, in the last chapter, he said, I suppose if we wrote them all, the libraries and all the world cannot hold the books that should be written and could be written about what Jesus did. So John was selective. And this is the first sign that John selects 
in order to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. As Jesus turned the water into wine. So he said to her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. (laughs) Mom, what am I going to do with you? (laughs) The hour hasn't come yet. But Mary just went over to the servants and said, Whatever he tells you to do, do it. (laughs) Mothers know their boys. Now there were six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. Uh, They had these large water pots for purifying. In order to be purified, you had to do it with running water. You couldn't put water in a basin and wash in, in, in in the still water. You had to have pouring water. So they had these big water pots and they would take the water out and pour it and you would always purify under running water. They held two or three firkins apiece. A firkin is uh, nine gallons. And so each of these water pots held between 18 and 27 gallons. So if we would put an average to them, six of them, you have about 120 gallons of water in the six water pots. And Jesus said unto them, the servants, fill them with water. And they filled them up to the brim. I like that. Might as well get, you know, get it all. Fill it to the brim. You know, if the Lord's going to bless you, take it all. Don't, don't uh, you know, just give him a half opportunity. Just let him do it all the way. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear to the governor of the feast. And they bear it. I wonder what they were thinking. Out of wine, now they're taking water to the governor of the feast. (laughs) And the ruler of the feast, when he tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know from whence it was, but the servants that drew the water they knew, The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and he said unto him, every man at the beginning sets forth the good wine and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but you have kept the good wine until now. Uh, You've reversed things, son. Usually they put, you know, the good wine out first. And of course it's true after a while when eating anything, your taste buds get sort of... uh, satiated and and you don't taste as keenly. That's why in fancy restaurants they they serve you the sherbet sometimes between courses to sort of clean your palate uh, so that you can get, you know, the the good flavor again as you go into a new course uh, because the taste buds just sort of get loaded and and, and they're not as keen. And so uh, the same with, with the wine. You put out the good first when a person... Is, is drunk a little bit, the taste buds get uh, sort of, uh, f- you know, loaded. And, and, and of course, you get sort of loaded. And, uh, the, uh, and then you bring out the, the stuff that's sort of cheap. Uh, but 
this guy marveled at the good wine that was brought out. And this was the beginning of miracles that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. This was, this was the start of the miraculous works of Jesus, the first sign. And, of course, it's quite a remarkable sign, changing the water into wine, his power over the elements is demonstrated here. The ability to change the elements. And he manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So this was the beginning. They had started following Christ, and uh, the movement has now begun the movement that will ultimately bring him to his hour of glory when he gives his life as a ransom for our sins. After this, he went down to Capernaum. There on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. Notice his brothers are listed separately from his disciples. From the scriptures, we do know that he had several brothers who were, of course, half-brothers to Jesus. James, Judas, Simon uh, are named as his brothers as well as sisters. This is when they were hearing of Jesus and they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Aren't his brothers with us to this day? And, and they were offended because of him, because they knew him. And that's when he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and among his own people. And they stayed there just for a few days, but he was later to establish his ministry headquarters in Capernaum. This was to be sort of the uh, center uh, for the activities of Jesus. As he would minister throughout the Galilee region, Capernaum would sort of become home or home base for him. So they come to Capernaum and uh, just sort of Establish things. They're there just for a short period. And then because the Jews' Passover was at hand, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus was obedient to the Mosaic law that required the adult male Jews to be in Jerusalem for the feast. We see him here at the feast of the Passover. This is not the first time, of course, he had gone to Jerusalem for the feast, even as a child. You remember he was taken by his parents to Jerusalem for the feast when he was about 12 years old. And uh, we find him in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. We find him again in Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of uh, Hanukkah, uh, the wintertime feast. And so... Uh, Jesus uh, made it a point to be in Jerusalem 
for the feast and obedience to the Mosaic law. And he found in the temple, now the word temple here is a reference to the outer court area, not the inner court. There's another Greek word for the inner court. This is the outer court, the Herion. And he found there, it would be sort of the court of the Gentiles. There were those who sold the oxen and the sheep and the doves and the changers of money who were sitting there and they made it sort of a marketplace. Now, according to the traditions, these little concessions were authorized by the high priest. And he received a, it was sort of a franchise kind of a thing, and he received uh, commissions from the sales of the animals for sacrifice and from the uh, changing of money. Now, when you brought an animal to sacrifice it to the Lord, it was necessary that that animal be perfect. God said he didn't want any roadkill. Uh, you weren't to just bring in some damaged animal to give to God, some cast off. But you were to bring in the finest. It had to be uh, without spot, without a blemish, uh, in order to be accepted as a sacrifice. And thus, they were selling animals that had already been examined. You see, you brought your animal, the priest would examine it to make sure that it didn't have a blemish, to make sure that it was, that it was perfect. And if he found a blemish, it would be rejected. He would not offer it as a sacrifice. And so many times a person would bring a lamb and they'd come with their family and they wanted to make an offering to the Lord and as the priest examined it, he would find some little blemish and he would reject it. So here you are, you're ready there to worship God and to sacrifice and your lamb has been rejected so you could go over to these booths and you could buy a lamb that had already been certified for sacrifices, but you'd pay twice the price because of its prior certification. You could buy doves who had, which had been certified, but again at extremely high prices. So there was, first of all, a gouging of the people. You could not give in the offering to God any coin that had the inscription of a Roman emperor. They considered that an image and sacrilege and they would not accept it as the temple offering. So the money changers were there. They would take your Roman coinage that could not be used in the temple offering, and they would exchange the Roman coinage for the temple coinage, the temple shekel. But again, exchange it at a very high rate of exchange. You'd have to pay 25% or so, uh, the loss of that. And of course, these fellows were taking the difference. A couple of things. Number one, the gouging of the people 
who had come to worship God, taking advantage of their desire to worship God to make personal profit off of it. The profiting off of religion. Paul the Apostle, when writing to Timothy, warns of those false teachers who would teach that godliness is a way to riches or a way to gain money, using it for personal financial gain. He said, from such turn away. The second problem with this, merchandising there in the temple grounds, was it was making religion easy. You can more or less buy your way in and making it easy on the people. Convenient. You don't have to go out to your flock and get a lamb and bring it all the way. It was a convenience kind of a thing. Making it easy. And Jesus saw this. And he made a scourge of small cords, probably the cords that they had tied around the oxen that were for sale, cords that were lying around. And he went around and picked up these cords that were once the leashes or the, uh, on, the, on the oxen. And he made this whip. And he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. And he turned over the changers' money overturning the tables. Now, there are those wimpy people who want to make Jesus a wimp. And so they say, well, it didn't say he ever struck anyone. Well, it didn't say he didn't either. And, well, you know what I think. I think he was a man. I mean... I mean, here's the guy in there. I mean, why didn't they stop him? I think he was rugged. I think he was rough. When he saw this abomination, I, 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 he, he was just so upset. He went through that place, dumping over the tables of money. Now, that would have, you know, you would think that they'd all just gang up on him. I mean, what are you doing here? Dumping the money on the floor. These guys are scrambling to pick up the money. And he begins to drive out the oxen and those that were selling them, the sheep. And he said unto them that sold the doves, take these things out of here. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, this is at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. This happens to be the second sign that John gives to us to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is calling the temple my father's house. Now, at the end of the ministry of Christ, the final week, probably the day after his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, the next day he came back into Jerusalem and once again 
He cleansed the temple. So he did this at the beginning of his public ministry and once again at the end of his public ministry. So twice Jesus cleansed the temple from the merchandising that had become so common within the temple itself. My father's house, they all knew it was the house of God, and thus he is claiming to be the son of God as he cleanses the temple. Now his disciples remembered the scripture. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Psalm 69, 9. They remembered that psalm as they saw him with this zeal going in and cleaning up the place. And then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign do you show us, seeing that you're doing these things? What sign do you give us to authenticate your actions here? You say that this is your father's house. What sign do you show us? Of course, he is fulfilling a prophecy of the Messiah. Thus, what sign do you give to us that you are the Messiah? that this is your father's house, that you are the son of God. And Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, we've been building this temple for 46 years. And you're going to raise it up in three days? John, of course, is writing towards the end of the first century. And he said, but he spoke of the temple of his body. And when he was risen from the dead, the disciples remembered then his words. Now, Paul the apostle refers to our bodies not as a temple, but as a tabernacle. When you talk about a temple, you're, you're thinking of something rather permanent. When you talk about a tabernacle, you're thinking of something rather temporary. You talk about a tent, and a tent is a temporary kind of thing. Might be good for a couple weeks vacation, but oh, you begin to long for a shower again. So a tent, we, we don't think of a tent as, as well, I just bought a new tent and, you know, I'm going to pitch it in the park and I'm going to live there for, you know, a while. But you know, it's just, it's a temporary thing. Never thought of as permanent. And so Paul uses the analogy again of our bodies as a tent in 2 Corinthians 5. We know that when this earthly tabernacle is dissolved, we have a building of God that's not made with hands, that's eternal in the heavens. So then, we who are living in these tents, 
do often groan earnestly desiring to be freed, not to be an unembodied spirit, but to be clothed upon with the body which is from heaven. For we know that as long as we are living in these bodies, we are absent from the Lord, but we would choose rather to be absent from these bodies that we might be present with the Lord. So what Paul is teaching and what the Bible does teach is that the body isn't the real you. The body is just a tent in which you are living for a while. The real you is spirit. The body is God's gift to us and it's a marvelously designed instrument whereby my spirit can express itself. I'd have a hard time expressing myself to you tonight if it weren't for my body. If I were just pure spirit. And in the same token, you'd have a hard time understanding what I was trying to express if you didn't have a body. So the bodies are the instruments by which we can tell what we are, what we feel, what we think. We relate through the medium of the body to each other. So as you relate to me what you are and what you feel, what you think, I begin to know you, I begin to understand you, I begin to appreciate you and admire you, I begin to love you. And we come into these meaningful, loving relationships through the instrument of the body as we relate to each other. Now, we, we are always, it seems, so associating the body with the person that it's hard for us to, to think of the, that person separate from the body. But in reality, the real me is spirit. This is just a tent. It's getting creaky, getting old, getting holes, and, and falling apart, getting threadbare. And one of these days, I'm going to move out of this tent. Don't mourn. I'm going to be moving into a mansion. A building of God not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. I appreciate the tent. I thank God for the marvelously designed body. I marvel at God's creative genius. But I'm looking forward to the building. That permanent dwelling place for my spirit. So death for the child of God is just moving out of the tent into the house or the mansion. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. It's the new body that he's gone to prepare for you. And one day, I'm going to move. Kay's going to send out change of address cards. (laughs) No longer living in the tent, now living in that building of God. Now, My prayer that we all move together. (laughs) Beloved, I show you a mystery. We're not going to all of us sleep, but we're all going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The metamorphosis, that glorious change from the tent as we move into the house for Jesus Christ is coming again. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And I think that that time is very, very close at hand. And I 
wait with excited expectation for the glorious return of Jesus Christ and the moving out of the limitations of this tent into the house, the building of God not made with hands. So Jesus is referring to his body as a temple. Not as a tent, but as a temple. And he said, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. So he is talking about his death and resurrection. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the Gospel of John in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the body as a tent. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 1-2 through when visiting thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we are so grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come to this earth that he might touch us and that we might touch him, that by touching him, we can touch you. We thank you, Lord, that he came as the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world, the sacrifice for our sins. We receive him now as our Lord, as our Messiah, the King, and we surrender our lives to him. In Jesus' name, Lord, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Pastor Greg Laurie. Rarely does a man come along that literally changes a generation. But such a man came, and that man is here tonight, and his name is Chuck Smith. Yeah? Yeah. 
Join Pastor Greg in an exclusive interview with Pastor Chuck. Listen to rarely heard stories and memories in Chuck's own words about the events that influenced him and how he, in turn, influenced so many. We have only one life and it'll soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. To order a copy of the special DVD with Greg Laurie and Chuck Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673. Again, the number to call is 800-272-WORD.